0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 41. It's titled The Cult of Overwork. The title for today's episode came from an article written by James Surowiecki in The New Yorker back in January 2014. He writes the financial page, and this particular article was on The Cult of Overwork and how Employees are working and professionals are working so many more hours than they used to. A 2008 Harvard Business School survey, which was quoted in the article, was a survey of a 1,000 professionals and found that 94% worked 50 hours or more a week, and almost half worked in excess of 65 hours a week. This particular topic came to my attention from a couple, couple of anecdotes that I recently had. One, we just spent a couple weeks in phoenix and i usually record this particular the show episodes on tuesday i upload it on wednesday last wednesday i uploaded episode 40 on commodities a little earlier cuz we were driving from phoenix to newport beach where we're going to be for a a few weeks to get out of the idaho snow and occasionally we'll listen to a podcast episode so i was listening to the startup alex bloomberg startup podcast episode 12 called burnout and it intrigued me because effectively Gimlet Media, which is the company that Alex Bloomberg started, is a podcast business. And and I'm somewhat familiar with it because I took a class a few months ago from from Alex Bloomberg. It was an online class sponsored by Creative Live on telling stories through podcasts. And so I kinda got an idea of how of their Work process. Obviously, I, I don't work for them, so not specifically, but I've I been doing this for nine months, so I, I have some sense of what it takes to put together a weekly show. Perhaps not by any means the quali- quality of show of a startup or this particular show I'm mentioning called Reply All, which is co-hosted by PJ Volk and Alex Goldman. It's a fairly new show. It's a weekly show. So in this episode 12 of Startup, on burnout, they were interviewing PJ Volk, and this was right after he had pulled an all-nighter, got home at 4.30 in the morning, and one of his jobs is is complex, is to keep the walks clear, and he he didn't have any rock salt to do that with, so he actually thrown table salt on the steps and kicked away the snow with his feet. And so this is the next day. He'd got, he was back in the office by 9 after getting home at 4.30 in the morning. It's about 2 in the afternoon, and they're interviewing him, and he's just describing how burnt out he feels. He said he has never been worked this hard in his life but felt so far behind. He's filled every hour he can think of of his time with work, typically time that would be spent with friends, the weekends he's working. New Year's Eve, one of his best friends comes down with her husband. He's in the, in the studio mixing his podcast episode while they're out drinking champagne. He is working, literally burnt out, and mentioned that there was sort of the point where something, a switch had flipped. They'd worked so many hours, they felt like they wanted to burn the place to the ground. They were burnt out, and they were working a lot of hours. Now, what struck me as odd is I do the same, effectively the same thing he does. I put together a weekly show, not necessarily as detailed, but but somewhat similar, but it really gets to the idea of how many hours does it take to produce or to accomplish a particular job. And in this this episode we want to talk about overworking but more importantly we want to I want to revisit a topic I discussed back in episode 8 on leisure and what leisure is. Episode 8 was focused more on how what would the what would happen to the economy if we worked only 4 hours a day? How could we actually have a sustainable growing economy if everyone only worked 4 hours a day? Today's episode is more on personal leisure, and why it is so critical. You can't just work, you have to have leisure. And leisure, as we'll see, is not rest. Leisure is not the opposite of work. Leisure is on a completely different plane, a completely different order, and it's critical that we have it in our lives. And when we're overworking, it clearly isn't there. I first became familiar with... Somebody that was overworking throughout my high school it's called career. Throughout high school and grade school, I always had odd jobs. So I had newspaper routes. I cut grass. I I spent a month weeding an elderly woman's backyard ivy path. or I was basically an Ivy Hill. I was a janitor, but I never had a quote unquote job where I had set hours. I could always make my own hours. But when I turned 18, I decided I wanted a full-time job. There was a hotel in downtown Cincinnati that was reopening. The Omni Netherland Plaza was an art deco hotel that had been built, I believe, in the, in the late 20s, early 30s. And they had just completed a major restoration. They were opening up the hotel. I went downtown. I stood in the line for an hour to get an interview, and they hired me. They hired me as a steward. This was back in the mid 80s where you were no internet, so I didn't know what a steward was. I just knew I got hired and started my first day of work a few weeks later and found out a steward is a fancy name for an employee that mainly washes dishes and mops floors. And I stuck to that job for a year, but I got to see how, and I worked in. the the main restaurant, I got to see how a hotel, kitchen, four-star restaurant works. So we had a sous chef that was effectively a, a Gordon Ramsay protege, always screaming, always yelling. I got to see how what chefs do. I got to see what cooks do, which obviously involves a lot of cutting up vegetables. And I washed a ton of dishes, a ton of pots, I mopped a ton of floors, I separated garbage, and I saw that I didn't want to work as many hours as my boss did, who seemed to be there all hours of the night, seven days a week. And I saw him overwork, and at that young age of 18, I said, I don't, I don't want to do that. Twelve years later, I was in a job effectively overworking. I had just joined our investment consulting firm. I was a 25th employee, and one of my main responsibilities was to produce a performance report for our institutional clients, college endowments, private foundations. That involved taking bank statements, paper statements, getting market values, getting cash flows. It involved calculating the sector's by hand with a calculator figure out how much they had in technology versus healthcare stocks versus government bonds audit or reconciling the the performance with the managers figuring out which stocks had done better that quarter to put in the executive summary then we had to there was portions of the report in excel there was portions of the report in word there was portions in a proprietary software system we had we had fancy inkjet printers, not terribly fancy, that were spread all over the office that were notoriously slow at printing. And it was a Herculean task to pull together a performance report for a hundred, two $200 million endowment. We got to know when the last drop-off was or pickup for FedEx. There were a number of times that I actually drove to the airport FedEx to make the the last drop off at eleven at night. I was overworking, and and I was miserable, and and I I felt absolutely trapped in my position, and and I at one point I I effectively was going to leave. I I got (laughs) the race. I mean, I was working so many hours. And after doing the reports, I would actually go and drive to meetings and meet with the, the foundation and endowment. So I, we, we did it all with, with no support. And I got to the point where I stepped back and I, I said, well, what, what, what am I getting paid to do? Which is the first question to answer when, when you're overworked. What are you being paid to do? It's not always easy to figure out, and what are you actually doing? Now, there's two. There's two sides to that coin. When I say what are you actually doing, it's what are the activities you're pursuing in trying to achieve what you believe you're getting paid to do. And second, what are you What are the outcomes? What are you actually accomplishing as you go through those activities? As an investment consultant, in our minds, at least. As we felt like we were auditors. We were overseeing managers. The managers, the stock managers, the bond managers had the true power. They're making 10 times what we were. And we were monitoring their performance. We would make recommendations when to add a manager, when to fire a manager. And we would educate our clients. We would teach them. But essentially, we saw ourselves as... Fancy auditors auditing performance. Eventually, I had an experience that I realized that I'm not an auditor. I was actually the money manager, and this came in in the late 1990s. This was right after mega cap stocks had done extremely well, and indexing was all the all the rage. It was two two themes going into the in the late 90s one there was that idea well why aren't endowments hundred percent stocks The second is why don't we just index the large company stock portfolios with an s; p 500 index because it's outperforming all the managers one of the things in the, the performance reports that we would do is we would compare a manager to a peer universe so if you were a large company growth manager you were compared to a peer group of other large company growth managers. And did you rank above the median of those managers or did you rank in the top quartile? And the objective was to achieve top quartile performance. And so we would try to research and find these managers that were that skilled that could consistently rank in the top quartile. Well, it turns out no one can consistently rank in the top quartile over a three and five year periods. In fact, managers that rank in the top quartile of their peers over a 10-year period generally are below median about 30% of the time on a three-year time frame and even on a five-year time frame. And so they go in cycles. That that's, was the first takeaway. Can't be done. But the one particular university client that I was working with really wanted to index their portfolio. They were tired of their large company man- stock manager that had, more, was, had a smaller average market capitalization than the S&P 500. So they had mid-large company stocks in the portfolio, which was a horrible environment when mega cap stocks, the biggest of the big names, the GEs, the Procter & Gamble's, are leading the market. And they wanted to fire the manager, and and they wanted to index. And the last thing I wanted to do was to put an S&P 500 index fund manager in to replace a manager that was underperforming, because I knew eventually it it would flip. And so I started doing more research, and I thought, well, why don't we just combine the S&P 500? We'll put 80% of the money in that index, and we'll put 20%... Of the, of the money in a mid-cap index. And we would combine them and I would do a composite so we could see what the total performance was. I did the research and I found that an 80-20 portfolio actually ranked in the top quartile of the peer group uh, of all large company managers and did so consistently. You didn't have these three-year periods when it was in the bottom quartile. Generally, it was always above the median. That was so eye-opening to me because I realized two things. One, there's all this activity going on with stock managers. They're trying to find great companies. They're they're visiting managers. They're talking to competitors. They're doing all these financial statements, quant models, trying to find the best stock ideas. So there's all this work, call it overwork that's, that's happening. At the same time, for about... A tenth of the effort, if that, I could put together at 80% in the S&P, 20% in the S&P 400, 80% in the s 500, 20% in the SP 400, create a portfolio that outperformed consistently the vast majority of active managers. And a, it was at that point that I realized, hey, we're the money manager here. The manager's... The actual stock managers that are making 10 times more money than us are are certainly picking securities. But the portfolio performance, what we're showing in to the clients over our portfolio is driven by the portfolio structure. It's driven by the asset allocation, and it's driven by the combination of managers and the factors they create. And if I could essentially create a top quartile manager by using some index funds, I realized that I could extend that to an entirely different way of managing money. It took me a few years to figure it out. But that, when you go back to, I believe it was episode 34, which was on rules of thumb, it became my obsession to find how can I manage money with the least amount of effort. How could I avoid overworking? Now, back in the, the performance report, we eventually came up with a, a, a completely different system. One was, instead of sitting there hand-calculating all these sectors, it's just ask the managers for it to input it into the computer software we created. And and then we went out and leased a huge honking printer that could print way more than inkjet printers. So we, we were eventually able to cut hours. But it's this idea... I realized that I thought I was getting paid to be an auditor of manager performance. What I was really doing was actually driving performance, driving the returns. And, and once, once I changed that mindset, one, I, I found ways to accomplish what I was really getting paid to do or was really doing, and I found a way to get paid for doing what I was really doing, to be a money manager, and it was at that point that we started raising client fees and working smarter, not harder, which I realize is a cliché. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Togovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow, all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at NetSuite com slash david That's netsuite.com/slash/david. Netsuite.com/slash/david. Why is overworking so dangerous? Well, first, it can kill you. The Japanese have a term called karoshi, which essentially means death by overwork. The Asian cultures are known for mandatory overtime in China, Korea, Japan, working tremendous hours because it's a sign of commitment. But most of are not going to die from overwork. The main reason overworking is so dangerous is it doesn't allow us to obtain true knowledge. Throughout ancient Greece into Middle Ages, medieval times, The great thinkers knew there were two types of knowledge, two ways to obtain knowledge. The first type of knowledge, what is called ratio, which is the knowledge we get from observing, measuring, working hard, mental activity, buckling down, gritting our teeth, getting that knowledge. The second type of knowledge is called intellectus. This is intuitive knowledge, knowledge that we get only through leisure. There's a book by Joseph Piper who wrote an essay called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Here's a quote from him. Compared with the exclusive idea of work as activity, leisure implies an attitude of non-activity, of inward calm, of silence. It means not being busy but letting things happen. Leisure is not the attitude of mind for those who actively intervene, but those who are open to everything, not of those who grab and grab hold, but those who leave the reins loose and who are free and ease of themselves, almost like falling asleep. For one can fall asleep only by letting oneself go. Leisure is what allows us to... Obtain this second type of knowledge, to to be our most creative selves. Many of our best ideas will come when we're sleeping. It comes when we're not pressing. It comes when we are letting go, letting free of the reins. And if we're overworking, we don't have that time. We are always at the grindstone, working our hardest. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe G O E T H E, who wrote Faust. I struggled with the name throughout my entire life. I read it as Goeth, which apparently, looking on YouTube, is Gutta. Spent over 20 years studying colors. He had prisms and he studied color phenomena. And he spent a lot of time measuring it, looking at all different ways of observing colors. But one of the things that he came away was you can't just gain knowledge by observing. There is what he calls the pure phenomena. You actually can obtain true knowledge by using your entire self, your whole self, to learn something. You need the ratio, the measuring, but you need that intellectus, to that intuitive knowledge to grasp the entire thing. He called the aspect of color the deeds and suffering of light, how color interacts and changes with the atmosphere. Rebecca Solnit, in her book, The Art of Getting Lost, The Field Guide to Getting Lost, talks about this color, particularly the color blue, how blue is the world is blue at its edges and in its depth. This blue is the light that got lost. The waves of blue don't actually ever reach us. They scatter amongst the molecules. And that's why the sea is blue. The clearer the water, the deeper the blue, because the molecules of blue, the wavelengths of blue scatter among the the molecules. It's the deeds and suffering of light. It's what What Gutta felt was how you obtain true knowledge, and you can't do it simply by working hard. You have to have that time when you're not doing anything, the non-activity, when you need the leisure. Leisure is essentially activities we do for their own sake. Work, there's always a means to the end with work. You work to earn money. You work to contribute to society. You work to get satisfaction, but leisure you do activities simply for the joy of doing them, and that is where we get the true knowledge, that intuitive knowledge, the knowledge that just isn't rational in the sense that he can't be learned simply by measuring and observing. There's a book by Alan Lightman called The Accidental Universe, The World You Thought You Knew. In there, he talks about fascinating scientific discoveries. But he also says the strong sense of the infinite, the belief in an unseen order in the world, the feeling of being in the presence of something divine are all personals. Qualities of this experience cannot be quantified or measured, like readings on a voltmeter, and thus cannot be transferred to others. The qualities must be experienced by the individual in unique moments. The physical universe is subject to rational analysis and methods of science, the spiritual universe is not. All of us have had experiences that are not subject to rational analysis. Besides religion, much of our art and our values and our personal relationships with other people spring from such experiences. The point of leisure is not to rest from work so we can recover physically and mentally in order to be effective employees come Monday. Leisure in its true sense as I said earlier, is on a higher plane. It's a different order. Leisure is what gives meaning, depth, and purpose to life. Piper writes in his essay, only in genuine leisure is a gate to freedom open. Through the gate, we escape a shallow existence that consists solely of work and unemployment. Life is more than work and non-work. Life needs to be mostly about leisure, activities we pursue, simply for the sheer pleasure and joy. Because that is when we have those personal experiences that help us understand the meaning of the world for ourselves. Not from what somebody else has told us, but for ourselves and allow us to attain really a, a higher level of knowledge, So stop overworking. Go write a poem, paint, meditate, pray. It could be an adjustment if, if you're used to working very, very long hours to suddenly to, to pull back and, and find out ways to do that. The other anecdote I, I wanted to mention was I was at a restaurant in Phoenix a few weeks ago, and there was a worker there who, employee, that bus tables and overheard a conversation he was having. He he was definitely a people person, but he mentioned that he hated his days off because he felt bored and restless and he couldn't wait to get back to work. He hasn't learned how to celebrate his leisure and find leisure activities. And, And it can be hard for people to do that. But ultimately... We need to structure pockets of leisure in our lives. Earlier I mentioned how in my investment career I became obsessed with finding simple rules of thumb to manage portfolios without having all of this underlying work and activity involved in trying to find individual securities in terms of researching stocks, researching bonds. Is there a way to effectively outperform the market And achieve financial goals simply by using asset classes and making adjustments based on simple rules of thumb. Those rules of thumb are valuations. It is market internals such as momentum. It's economic and central bank trends and staying in line with the trends. On the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, I show you how I'm doing that, what I'm doing with my own portfolio, and what are market conditions. Where are we in terms of the environment, in terms of valuations, in terms of market internals, in terms of central bank and economic trends? I do it in a simple way so you don't have to get into all the nitty-gritty that I do, but I just give I share with you where we are in the current environment to help you so you can set your appropriate level of portfolio risk and stock exposure. You can get more information on that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. If you would like show notes for this episode, you can get that at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's where We can sign up for my Insider's Guide where I'll email you weekly those show notes. That's where I'm answering listeners' questions and providing other valuable information to members of the Insider's Guide. That's at moneyfortherestofus.net. Thank you for everyone that has left reviews of the show on iTunes. I very much appreciate that. If you've not left a review, I I would encourage you to do so. I I find the feedback helpful. Everything I've shared with you in in this show, in this episode, is for general education only. I have not considered your specific risk profile. I have not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.